there. Uh, this is Kevin Evans with the Chapter by Chapter Live class with Crossroads Assembly of God in Greenville. And we are currently studying Acts, uh, written by Luke. And uh, we are in Chapter 12, where we uh, just discussed, hey guys, we just discussed uh, Peter's uh, uh, miraculous escape from prison, which goes from verse 1 down to verse 19. And we talked that to death until we absolutely ran out of room. And we are going to pick it up at uh, verse 20-ish and finish off this section. Uh, before I do that, though, uh, since that first section had to do with uh, Herod, uh, I waded into the Herodian dynasty, and uh, somebody, Bill, challenged me, Bill, on everything that I said, Bill, and so, uh, and I was embarrassed, so uh, I, I have provided a chart for everybody named Herod in the Bible. Okay, here, there's one. And uh, so we're going to do a quick review. And basically, there was Herod's father. I don't have Herod's father in the chart. Okay. Herod's father was a, a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He was not Jewish, per se, but he's still uh, ethnically within that same group of people. And his people settled south and east of Jerusalem and are still there. And uh, the Edomites, I don't know. Thank you. He was an Edomite. And so uh, he was appointed by the Romans as a Syrian governor. And as he kept them happy, they increased his area of control. And ultimately, I discovered this week, he was also for a time governor of Jerusalem. And so uh, Herod's Edomite father was the uh, governor of Jerusalem for a while. So when I said that he was the Herod uh, himself grew up as the son of a diplomat, that was kind of true. But really, he's the son of the governor. He's, he was the, the, the prince apparent uh, as he was uh, growing up. And he himself becomes the tetrarch of uh, Jerusalem, or at least that particular area that included it. Um, and, uh, and, and he uh, manifested his power. So he became very, very powerful. He had a lot of territory. Uh, he was an absolute dictator. He uh, built the temple, the, the second temple, in order to build his own cred. Because the way Romans build their cred is to build buildings, and he built a lot of buildings that are still there. Um, Okay. Uh, I, just, I, <laughs> I think it's called the second. Yeah. I think one. There's the difference between the temple and the tabernacle. I think you're talking about the tabernacle. Okay. At least I'm giving you an out there so you can bail. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. All right. So. When has that ever happened? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, Herod, 
is the Herod that slaughtered the children in Bethlehem looking for Christ, and he's the one that the wise men came and visited. And evidently, according to what I could find, about a year after that happened, he died. So when he died, all of his adult sons were already in sub-control positions of territories around his, his, his domain, and they all continued in that capacity without Big Boss on the top. And so you have all these sons of Herod who are all named Herod because Caesar became such a big shot that all of his kin that took over that position called themselves the Caesar and it stops being a name and starts being a title. So because these uh, guys are working for the Romans, they're following the Roman tradition and so they start doing the same thing in the Roman way because that's where all their power comes from. I have a question. Okay. Was this woman married to Alexander Anarotopus? Oh, it gets so good. Okay, Herod the Great had multiple wives, and I've got one, two, three, four, five on the chart because they were interesting. There were far more than this. He killed several of them. Uh, he had dozens of children. These are the ones that were old enough to take power at the time or, or whatever, you know, uh, but there were a lot of kids otherwise, and uh, he had a uh, wife named Miriamne. Interesting that there are two of those. He has two wives of the same name. Uh, and uh, she had Alexandra and Astrobolus. And uh, she, was, she was his favorite wife. Uh, she was the one that ate dinner with him every day. Everybody else lived in a concubine somewhere else. I don't know. And uh, he got mad at her one day and threw a hissy fit and had her killed on a whim. And by the time he calmed down, she was dead. And then Astrobolus came in, her son, and challenged his father on killing his mother. So he killed him too. So Astrobolus had three children, which is Herod of Chalus, and he's off somewhere else, controlling somewhere else. A woman named Herodias, and Herod Agrippa I, whom we're going to get to in a minute. So Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great. Meanwhile, after Herod the Great dies one year after Bethlehem, as when Charles was a child, Herod Antipas becomes the new king, or the new uh, tetrarch of Jerusalem. And so uh, that would be his son through Malthus. Herod Antipas wanted to control his, okay, for, uh, get ahead of myself, Philip I, uh, do you see him there? He's Mariame II, Herod Philip I. Okay, he is trying to solidify his control of things, so he marries Herodias. So this is a first cousin once removed marriage. Um, and you're groaning over there like that's a bad thing. Is that a bad thing? First person, first cousin once removed? Oh, okay. Actually, actually, it means the child of your first cousin. Oh, okay. Actually, wait, that's not true. This is a this is a half brother. Oh, this is his uncle. Okay, it's a little closer than that, isn't it? Okay, okay. I'm so sorry. I, I counted that wrong last time around. 
Because in, in ancient history, in fact, it, right up to the American Civil War and almost all civilizations, first cousin once removed is a fair, fair match. In fact, they used to actively go for that. So if you could find, had, if your cousin is 10 years older than you are and he has a daughter and, and she's 10 years younger than you are, that's actually a pretty good match because then uh, your children will inherit both leagues of land that are next to each other and then that, you, and, and that's all you know, that's fair. Kinda, is that kind of how the Jewish people well, also there is there is a tradition of marrying your husband's widow in order to uh, uh, provide for her. Yeah, and, you if you, know. and if you don't, then she takes you to the gate. Yeah. And spits on you and stomps. Yeah, you that ain't good. Okay, yeah, you're right. This is a niece. Not so he he marries his niece. Okay, and it gets better. Herod Antipas is trying to control Philip's land. There, there's, there's a territory thing and there's money involved. And so Herod Antipas has Philip the first killed. He has him assassinated. And then he marries his wife who evidently had, because she's family, has a certain uh, political power. And so he's also marrying his niece. And, uh, and, and she has a daughter named Salome. I have no idea who child she is. But, uh, and so that's, the, that's where the, John the Baptist loses his head over condemning that one, okay? So, 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 huh? This is Herodias. This is Herodias. She is married both to Philip I, her uncle, and then she was married uh, Herod Antipas, her uncle. Yeah, uh, yes. And so Antipas went ahead and ruled for a while until... He was exiled. He, he crossed the Romans and they kicked him out. He wasn't assassinated, strangely enough. Royalty is the most inbred people you'll ever meet throughout all of history. Probably. Um, and so after Antipas, Herod Agrippa I takes over, who is, a, who is his nephew and his brother to Herodias, and full brother. And he is the grandson of Herod the Great. And he is the guy that we're dealing with in this passage. Because he, he, he ruled for a solid three years. He uh, never had really solid political control over everything like Grandpa did. And he was going for that, which means he was sucking up to every power in the world. You know? And so in the last chapter, we saw him trying to pacify the temple and all the Sadducees, and he goes and uh, basically baptizes himself into the Jewish faith, submits to circumcision, does everything that the priests want, and I assume giving them a big pile of cash as well, and they blessed him as the new king of the Jews. And so he uh, uh, takes that over and he gets them on their side. And so he, any t ruling he makes, he wants to make sure that the chief uh, priest is happy with him because that chief priest carries more real political power in Jerusalem than he does at this point because he's the new guy. He also has to pacify the Romans because the Romans are the ones that are allowing him to rule. And so we, that which brings us to the segment that we're about to get into. So there's the stage all set for you. <clears throat> Then Herod went to Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. This is verse 19, verse 12. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Imagine that. 
they now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they demanded on the king, they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So he was about to cut off their food in order for them to behave. We don't know what the deal was, but he's, he's dealing with politics. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a man, not a not God, not a man. Immediately, as Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. <coughs> There is this Jewish historian, which I've referred to many times before, named Josephus. And Josephus, because he was recording for the Romans, recorded this incident with a lot more detail than Luke gives us. So summarizing, here's the story. Uh, Herod is sucking up to the Romans. He wants the Romans to like him. He's the new ruler. He wants them to know that he's solid and on their side. There is a holiday that they celebrate in Israel, celebrating the Roman emperor. It's President's Day. And we're going to go talk about how great the Romans are on this day. I'm sure there were rousing parades in Jerusalem for this. You know, the only people doing this were the uh, rulers that are getting something from it and the people that they are forcing to stand in the crowd and, and shout, you know. And the, everyone who's paid, basically, is there. That, so it's a big political show of solidarity for the Romans that is kind of necessary to maintain their own power. So he does not do this in Jerusalem. That would not work at all. There aren't that many people on Roman side in Jerusalem. So he goes to Caesarea, and Caesarea, as we have discussed, is a massive Roman camp. There are at least two leagues of Romans there, uh, of Roman soldiers there, which amounts to, I think, wasn't the count 6,000 people, I think, something like that, plus all of their families and people that are there. This is a military town. You're leaving? Nah, that first cousin stuff is all <laughs> I'm crushed. Sorry, I'll listen to it. Oh, okay, bye. <laughs> oh, I have two listeners now. Oh, no, Kenny's here. One listener again. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that first cousin thing is <sighs> the in the mountains. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed. I, 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 it was a good catch there, actually. Okay, so um, he goes to Caesarea, and he delivers this message according to Josephus in the amphitheater. And guess what? The amphitheater is still there and is regularly toured. And um, a lot of people who have done the big tour of Jerusalem have gone through it. And what it is is a very, it's an open theater with, that's kind of dug in the ground and it'll seat several thousand people. And uh, the Romans used it for big proclamations and plays. And so that's where you, it's, it's their theater, you know. And so... Uh, Gospel of Evans. If, if you're if you're if you're uh, uh, the king of Jerusalem and you're trying to impress the Romans, 
and you go into the Roman amphitheater to deliver a, a speech that's kind of important for your future and your power, this is important. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you call somebody and do some homework and plan your speech and get some help? No, he didn't. It doesn't say that in the scriptures. But wouldn't you? Isn't that what you would do? Yeah. No. That's what I would do. You know what I would do? I would call the theater manager. Surely there's a theater manager who's in the amphitheater, right? Because I don't know anything about the amphitheater. Maybe I don't. But he does. And so I would, I would talk to somebody that's actually done a speech in the amphitheater just to kind of fill out, fill out what's going on and, uh, and plan this. Because according to Josephus, something like that had to have happened. Because what Herod did was he planned his speech in the morning when the, when the sun was low and facing into the theater because the theater is built facing toward the east. And he wore a robe that is very un-Romanly because they wore white. And uh, the Jews had their own kind of, you know, Jewish looking clothes too. He wore a white robe that uh, goes to the floor and it had silver wire stitched into it, silver embroidery. Was with, he trying to be godlike? With little sequins in it. It's the robe. That, okay, here's also gospel of Kevin because I can't prove this. It was the robe that the theater manager gave him that they use in plays to indicate that this character is a god. Because how are you going to indicate that a character is a god in a Roman play? They dress that way. I was in Persephone in my sophomore year in high school. Best actor in zone. And yes, that's how you indicate a god. He's shiny. He was trying to orchestrate the whole thing so that they would think he's god? Is that what you're saying? He's playing the role. And so he dresses like a deity. And he delivers his rousing speech in support of Caesar Caligula. Caligula is the guy that, yeah, that part was tasty. Anyway, and so he, 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 he praising Caligula. And then the people start chanting, this is the voice of God. Okay, if you were talking to the theater manager and you want this to be a rousing speech, and it's a bunch of Romans you're trying to impress, and you really don't have that many fans. What do you do? You slip him some money, and you put 12 theater actors out in the middle of the, the, the group, and they're called shills, and then they stand up, and they start applauding at exactly the right time. Do you think this is done in theaters today? Are you saying this is a fact, or you're just saying... No, this is Gospel of Kevin. Gospel oh, of Kevin. Okay. I can't prove this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, but if I, if, I, if, I, if I were writing the screenplay, this is how this would go down. Uh, they started shouting that this is the voice of God, but I, I have a hard time believing that that happened naturally. I think it was orchestrated. orchestrated. Yes, I do. I think he orchestrated it because he wanted the Romans to see him as being <laughs> as powerful as possible. He wanted them to hear about this speech back in Rome. Yeah, which makes sense. Right? But all they heard about was the worms ate him and he died. Right. And so here he is. They start chanting... He's a god, and he does not deny it. In fact, I think I think he gloried in it. And that's why God struck him down. Because he died. Because he's the king of Jerusalem, and he's saying he's a god. That's why whenever you pray for somebody, you make sure that you tell them that you know this is God going to do this, not me. It's just I'm just the vessel praying for you. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens, it's God. You know. 
And according to Luke, and I don't think this was in Josephus, he was eaten by worms. Okay, Luke is the detail man, and he's not going to stick that in. This isn't a euphemism about how he, you know, he's buried and eaten by worms because that's what happens to dead people. No, he's he's describing something that happened. And he's a physician. And yes, and so and so I, I, I again I can't prove this, but uh, I saw a commentary. Actually, it was a YouTube video. On, uh, by a biologist who is speculating on what could explain this. And there are, this is disgusting, there are 12 different kinds of tapeworms and uh, they all have slightly different uh, behaviors. One of the tapeworms that is specific to this area uh, will set up a, they call it a cyst on the side of your liver and it grows the, all the tapeworm eggs in it. It's basically an egg sac that grows in your liver. And when that egg sac bursts, there will be hundreds of tapeworms, uh, baby tapeworms come out at the same time, and it almost invariably kills the host within days. They're, they're fatal. And so that is what he speculates, is, you know, would explain it, and that would be consistent with all of the facts that we have at so Luke looks at that, and, and it, oh, and Josephus said he died five days later. He, he was struck down and stayed ill and then died later. I don't know if that inconsistency is that big of a deal or if it's even an inconsistency, to tell you the truth. Depends on how you interpret it. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, and, uh, uh, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. It doesn't say when. So anyway... Uh, we have two references to the same incident and the takeaway is don't declare yourself to be God. I mean, yeah, uh, God struck down Herod's heresy and, you know, and, and, and that's all we got on that, I think, right? What I miss. Uh, so it, it, and so he, he sets up the next chapter by saying when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. John Mark, by most scholars' reckoning, is Barnabas' nephew. And we don't know how old John Mark is, and I think his age has a bearing in our interpretation of what's going to happen in the next chapter. But... Uh, John Mark is basically, we assume, acting as their aide as they travel. So they're, 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 they've got this kid that's keeping camp for them as they go. And it's unique that they had foster kids back then. Explain. Well, Syrian took Herod's place, and he was his foster, foster child, foster brother. Syrian was was Herod's foster brother. We haven't got. Oh, what? Oh, oh, you're in chapter 13? I thought that's where you so Why are you always two paragraphs ahead of me? <laughs> I, I got so much to say. Just push it. Just push it. Okay. Chapter 13. I have more notes. <laughs> I have one other thing. Okay, hit me. I just saw. It just said that Herod died from an uncomfortable case of maggot. Infested gangrene of okay, the genitals. That's what? 
That's what it says. There is nothing in here that says anything about gangrene of the genitals. I just said that immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not glory and died and died at each word. Once again, we are fighting bitterly over little details that matter not. <laughs> Which, of course, is the fun of this class. Okay. Well, this says that Josephus oh, states that the pain of his illness led Herod to attempt suicide by stabbing, and that the attempt was thwarted by his cousin. Huh. What on earth? Are you sure you got the right Herod? I don't think you have the right Herod. There are dozens of Herods. Great is the grandfather. Okay, okay. whatever. All right, this is <laughs> this says there are five different rumors named Herod. So Herod the Great, Herod. I think there were more than five actually. They just weren't as big. Well, Herod Philip would make six. Yeah. What it says. Okay. Yeah. Philip the first and Philip the second. Who were who were not in a row? They were concurrent and lived in different areas. It was there were two Herod Philip Herods running in countries at the same time. A medical explanation for his death is attempted. A parasitism caused by Schistosoma hematobium is suggested as the etiology for chronic renal failure. I sure am glad you cleared that up for us. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say it was ugly and he died. Yeah. 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 And smell it. <laughs> I think that I think that goes without saying. Chapter 13. Uh, I'm gonna just read the first five verses first. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius the Serene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. Luke is not going to throw in details that are unimportant to the storyline. And he, he understands the power of details. So I think it's important that we kind of understand all the little nuances to this. In the church at Antioch, which is where Paul and Barnabas had been preaching for the past year, and they just kind of traveled a bit, uh, they were the, the leadership, prophets and teachers. Prophet is not necessarily referring to somebody predicting the future. They are people prescribing the present. They are the church leadership, if that makes any sense, uh, based upon the original Greek. And so this is a list of the church leadership. And if we follow... The traditions of ancient scripture, when you have a list of men, it, are, it goes from the most important to the least important. It goes from the oldest to the youngest. And usually that is a very fair supposition. 
it's not always 100%, but it, you're indicating in that direction. So if we were to assume that this is a hierarchical order, Barnabas is listed first, which would make me think that Barnabas, if they may not have had the term, is effectively the pastor of this church, right? Then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger is Latin for black, so he is Simeon called the black. It's not his last name, it's his designation. Most people tend to interpret that to mean that he is of North African descent. He is, he, he's Negro. Um, there is a small group of Christians who, that's the wrong note, who say, who try to connect him to Simon of, uh, is it Cyrus? Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, who carried Christ's cross. But that's a stretch, and there's not a whole lot of reference to support that. Their names are very similar, and they're from similar areas of the country. He's number two. I was trying to think of something clever to say, and it just disappeared out of my head. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene is also there. And uh, Lucius is a uh, Greek name. So he is Greek and from North Africa, and he's number three. Now remember that you have a whole contingency of people that came from Cyrene through Cyprus to, uh, 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 where they are. Where how you became the foster brother of Herod. Getting there. So Lucius of Cyrene, and so they're all from that area. So there's a whole bunch, there's kind of a cultural group of people that are all from that same general area. And so Simeon and Lucius uh, are probably buds from the old country, wherever that was. Uh, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Okay. Where's, here we go. In Hebrew, the word is uh, synthropos. No, in Greek, that's what it is. And synthropos in the King James, which Bill uses, is uh, translated stepbrother, yeah, foster brother. Foster brother. <coughs> the, the word could be much more broad than that. That is a possibility. He could very well have been an adopted son and raised with Herod as a childhood sibling. It can also mean nursed together, educated together, intimate friend, or friend of the court, going down the list okay. of little NLT. definitions. Huh? NLT just puts it this way, childhood companion. Sure. So basically, Mannion is somebody that Herod grew up with. We don't know exactly how close, closely they were, but I think that Mannion probably knows Herod very well, personally. And much of what we know about Herod that comes through scripture may very well come through Mannion because he's the one that grew up with him. Does that make sense? So Mannion is a converted Jewish Christian 
And he is one of the prophets and, and leaders of this church. So that's kind of interesting. It's an interesting group. We've got old school wealthy Jews, which would be Barnabas. We've got um, Jewish people from North Africa. We've got uh, people from Cyprus mixed in with this church, although, you know, he doesn't specifically name anyone here. And then we've got this um, basically a Roman that grew up with, uh, with Herod. Wow. God isn't a respecter of persons, even even then. But he also grew, it says he also grew up with Saul too. You know, you ever hear about Saul? I think, comma, another person, Saul. Not Saul. We're referring to yeah, we're referring to Saul of Tarsus. That's who the, the last leader was. So all of these guys, if we assume that hierarchical structure, are a little more important in the church than Saul. Saul's the visiting guy. I was just reading, it says, Manishas, which had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Comma, and Saul. And Saul for the word. Okay. I missed the comma, sorry. Well, to be fair, mine doesn't have a comma. However, I I still stand by your interpretation. I I don't think that Saul, Saul did not grow up with Herod, so I'm pretty sure, pretty sure about that one. Okay. Right. And also Saul. Uh, so they're praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit tells them that Barnabas and Saul need to go be set aside for other work. It doesn't say where they're going. It says this is Paul's first missionary journey. Yeah. So how, how many years was this since his conversion? Uh, over 10. Over 10. It's, it's strange that it's his first missionary Well, he's been effectively pastoring a church for the past year. That's where he is now. We don't know what he did the other nine years, really. Uh, He was in Tarsus preaching, but we don't have record of that. Uh, Because that's where they found him. That's where he got left, and then he was found in the same place ten years later. So, yes, a good decade worth of training. And later he lists all of his injuries, and you can only match up half of those injuries in Scripture, which tells me that the other half were in Tarsus, right? I think he had a rough time for 10 years, and nobody wrote it down. It's probably good to throw away the rough draft later. You know, that's kind of what that I see that as. You know, you want to get rid of the rough draft, and we don't really matter. Okay, so that brings us to the journey. So they are set apart. And uh, I'm going to read down to verse 12, and we'll get in. We're going to wait into this. We won't have nearly enough time. We will do our best. Uh, Verse 4. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Cilicia and called from there to Cyprus, sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. And this is John Mark, the nephew here. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Have I lost any of you yet? The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. 
But Alemus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, where did that come from? Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Alemus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Don't make Paul mad. <laughs> Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay. I also read that John Mark was Mary's son. But it doesn't say what Mary, it just says she was he was the son of Mary. Okay. Um the two of them went in their way, and they went down to Cilicia. Cilicia, okay, if, if you'll turn to my notes from two weeks back, I gave you a little map that looks like this. Because yeah, I know you're cherishing my notes as we go. If you've got my little map, I'm about to give you a reference. Uh, Syrian Antioch, which is where we are, is, is right up at the top of the Mediterranean. And this town... Salimus is right on the border, straight west from Syrian Antioch, and it is basically the port for Syrian Antioch. They basically went down to the boats, is what they did. And so they went to Salimus, and they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them. So they, they traveled just a little bit. Then they traveled through, oh, and then they went, blah, 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 blah. no, that's Cilicia, sorry. Cilicia, and sailed from there to Cyprus, Cyprus is, of course, the big island in the middle of the Mediterranean there. And Paphos is the big city of the day on Cyprus. And that's marked on that map. So they went to Cyprus. So it's not a huge boat trip there. So it's just kind of across to the nearest thing. And they start preaching. And John is with them. They traveled through the whole island and came to Paphos. And there, on that island on Paphos, they meet Bar-Jesus the false prophet. Now, when I read this the first three times, I'm looking at two people, Bar-Jesus, the false prophet, and Alemus, the sorcerer. Right? He went there because there's this false prophet, and then he got accosted by a sorcerer. That's how I read that. When I looked at every commentary in the world ever, they all put both these guys together as the same person. And he is Bar-Jesus, the false prophet who was performing sorcery. Alemus is a word that means the sorcerer. It is a title that he probably assumed upon himself. And I'm running everybody out again. Bye. I won't let that have a blow to my ego at all. Uh, so, to, so, so he's challenged by this guy named Bar-Jesus. Jesus was not a unique name in the day. It, it means, I'm not sure I remember exactly what it means. It's a form of Jesse. It means 
to honor God, I think, or something to that general effect. Uh, and so there were there were people, there, there were forms of the word Jesse, you know, like there are forms of every name, and Jesus was one of those. And so Bar means son of, and so this is Elimus, the sorcerer, son of Joshua. Actually, Joshua's not Jesse, it's Joshua. So I, when I saw Bar Jesus, I'm thinking that we're making some kind of comment about Christ, and I think it's just coincidence that it's that that name is the same name. Does that make sense? Yeah, I thought it was a, like trying to, when I read that, I guess not knowing the... Like the anti-Jesus, you yeah, know, but yeah, that's, that's, but that's not what it means. Yeah. It, it's, it's like it's the son of, and it's just, it's just kind of an Arabic naming convention. So this guy has the governor's ear, Sergius Paulus, and uh, Paul has come in to challenge him, basically. Or he challenges Paul as Paul is preaching. So when Paul, uh, when he challenges him, uh, he, he, he basically curses him, and he loses his sight. Isn't that interesting? Because Paul lost his sight, too. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Like, how, I mean, why did he end up doing that? He was being led by the Spirit. Yes, which is really... See, I get, okay, if Paul had control over this curse, if he's making it up and being mean, I understand why he would take away his sight because Paul has endured that. If there is any person that understands groping in the darkness, Paul does. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if I, you know, if I were Paul, uh, that would be my favorite go-to. Just because, you know, if I'm going to curse somebody, I know what this feels like. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had horrible, horrible, horrible poison ivy outbreaks. And then when I was in high school and was furious at everybody I knew, uh, I literally planned ways to grind up poison ivy and put it into a mix. And I was, I was thinking about spraying it on lockers. I never did it. <laughs> but if I had a way of torturing someone, it would be something that I really understood well. And that would be poison ivy. You know, uh, if I were Paul, it'd be blindness for the same reasons, mm -hmm. right? But he does this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that yeah. complicates the whole thing again. Does, you know, ha, I've never had the Holy Spirit tell me specifically to do something other than shut up, you know? Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't know. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, yeah. he basically curses him into blindness, and that miracle convinces Sergius Paulus that he is for real. Yeah. And I think Sergius Paulus was a seeker. He was hunting, and he'd gathered around this charlatan who was, you know, uh, uh, wowing him, you know, because, you know, he, he had the wrong guy. And I think when Paul showed up, I think there was a, a divine reason for that. I think it was important that Sergius Paulus find his way to God and God brought him to him. But it says he was a man of intelligence. And I think that's yeah. interesting that they would notate something specific like that because Paul, Saul, you know, was also very intelligent as well. Yes. So I just, I don't know, I think the connections there are really interesting. Like it, God they are. Exactly how to reach each individual person where they are. Um, I think he chose that is just 
And something interesting happens at this point, and I know I'm running out of time rapidly, and I'm going to make this point and wrap this up. But uh, Paul, who was called, uh, Saul, who was called Paul, that's the first time that that appears. And then from the rest of this, this book, Luke refers to him as Paul. And I was thinking that there had been some kind of an, exp I was confusing him with Peter, because Jesus gave Peter his name. It was not a name that he already had. That was something new. You were the rock. Yeah. Paul was called Paul. It wasn't new. Saul is his Hebrew name. And when he is in synagogue talking to Jews, he is Saul. Uh, he, he's Saul. Uh, and then when he is with Greeks and in Tarsus, they're going to call him Paul because Paul is a Greek name. And it was common in this culture to have two names, and you had your Hebrew name first and your Greek name second. And we have several, John Mark is an example of that. There are lots of those. And, and basically it depends on which group of people you're in as to which name you go by. Well, no, Jesus, Jesus told him he would be called Paul from now on. No. That would be Peter you're thinking about. I thought there was a conversion. Yeah. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> I win. Da 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 da. No. No. This was his name. But the thing is, he's he's talking to Gentiles now, and he has left his Jewish community, and now he is preaching to Gentiles, and he shifts to Paul. Also, when you see Paul and Barnabas next, Paul's name is first for the first time which would mean that Paul is now the leader in this group. He's been elevated because he is now in his element and he is preaching to the people that he was called for. And suddenly he has taken on a, a, a matter of uh, authority. And I think that probably plays into John Mark's leaving, which we're about to discuss next week because I'm totally out of time now. And I think that that, 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 that authority shift probably has something to do with John Mark bailing. And, and we can argue about what that means later. Okay, with that, I'm signing off. Goodbye, Internet.